morning. Thanks for coming. Uh, my lecture today is about Midsummer Night's Dream. So Midsummer Night's Dream is written in about 1595 or 6. So its closest relations chronologically are probably Richard II and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, they're both plays which are quite interesting to look alongside Midsummer Night's Dream, in t- particularly in terms of linguistic and structural formality. It's first published in 1600 uh, quite an interesting quarto text to look at in 1600 and then again in 1623. So three plot lines, as you almost certainly know, are interwoven in Midsummer Night's Dream. The human world of Athens is awaiting the marriage of Duke Theseus to his bride Hippolyta, just as the case of Hermia, who prefers Lysander over her father's chosen suitor Demetrius, comes before Theseus for judgment. Theseus backs Aegeus, Hermia's father. Uh, He he backs uh, Aegeus in saying that Demetrius is a more appropriate husband for Hermia than Lysander. And so the lovers, Hermia and Lysander, run away into the wood outside the city. They're followed by Demetrius, and he in turn is followed by Helena, who is in love with him. The wood is the territory of the fairy world, Its rulers, Oberon and Titania, are quarrelling over custody of an Indian boy. Oberon's mischievous servant, Robin Goodfellow, or Puck, mixes up the lovers by applying a love potion to the men's eyes. They both then turn their amorous attentions onto a bewildered Helena. Meanwhile, a group of Athenian tradesmen are practising a play to be performed at Theseus' wedding. Robin puts an ass's head onto their boisterous ringleader, Bottom, and makes Titania fall in love with him. In the end, all the magics are revoked. Titania seeds Oberon, the contested child. Bottom's ass's head is removed. The play is performed, and the Athenian lovers form two couples. My question for thinking about the play was, remind me, who marries who? And I want to use this to discuss the way this most apparently romantic of comedies is actually rather satirical about its main subject, romantic love and turns out to be a play more about sex than about marriage. Now, even I know that the literal answer to the question who marries who is really quite simple. While in the play past, Demetrius has been wooing Helena and then turns to Hermia, and while while Demetrius and Lysander both turn to Helena in the wood, things do sort themselves out. Hermia marries Lysander, Helena marries Demetrius. We might set aside the possibility that Demetrius is still under the influence of the magic potion and see instead that whether he is or not, this is an inevitable comedy conclusion. Four lovers must make two couples. Hermia and Lysander get what they wanted at the beginning. Demetrius and Helena settle down as the structural foil. So the plot of Midsummer Night's Dream has amplified a common plot type, which we've had before in these lectures and we had last week, thinking about much ado about nothing, of two men who are jealously rivalrous over a single love object. That's an absolutely common structural trope in Shakespearean comedies. We might think about two noble kinsmen or two gentlemen of Verona as key examples of this plot type. But this plot has amplified that by doubling it. The two men are double rivals, first for Hermia and then under the influence of Robin's potion, for Helena. This shift from Hermia to Helena, and then in some cases back again, 
plus the similarity in names of the two women, combines, I think, with a stress throughout Midsummer Night's Dream, not on the lovers' distinctiveness, but on their complete interchangeability. Demetrius is a worthy gentleman, Theseus tells Hermia, and all she can reply, which is, remember, this is her reason why she can't marry Demetrius and she's got to marry Lysander. Her only reply is, so is Lysander. Theseus has to agree to that, so nobody's contesting that these are completely different people. Lysander urges his own claim to marry Hermia. I am, my lord, as well derived as he, Demetrius, as well possessed. So Lysander, too, uh, sets his highest claim to marry Hermia, that he is as good as Demetrius. So the claim is not, as in, say, Cymbeline, where Posthumus, the sort of true suitor, is set against the oafish Cloton, or in As You Like It, where it is variously impossible that Phoebe should marry Ganymede. These plays represent the alternative suitor as clearly implausible, clearly someone uh, who has to be uh, suppressed by the plot, who we, we have to get this woman away from, it's not possible. Um, Midsummer Night's Dream doesn't do that. In fact, when it introduces uh, Demetrius and Lysander in the first scene, it seems concerned to give us two lovers who are similar rather than different, who have equal social and personal claims to love Hermia. Even Hermia and Lysander, that's to say, can only claim that Lysander is as worthy as Demetrius. Now, that the lovers here are doubled, then, rather than being opposites, is part of a system of doubling and of double vision that extends throughout the play. And we might start, actually, at the kind of micro level. The play has an extraordinarily heavy use of rhyme. As you know, what blank verse means is the blank means unrhymed. Uh, this is a play which is hardly really in blank verse at all. More than 50% of its lines are rhymed. Only Love's Labour's Lost, another highly formal and intricate play, has a higher proportion. So it has a very high proportion of rhyming lines. And this high proportion of rhyme goes along often with repetitive rhetorical structures, types of parallelism, so types of rhetoric which um, uh, shadow or, or um, reiterate syntactic structures by emphasising them in subsequent lines. More particularly, perhaps, isocolon, that, a particular rhetorical structure which gives us syntactic um, units of the same length. So here's an example from the play's first scene where we can see that rhetorical idea of syntactic doubling, isocolon, and rhyme working together to emphasise the way the two female characters mirror or double each other. This is Hermia talking about uh, Demetrius. I frown on him, yet he loves me still. Helena, oh that your frowns would teach my smiles such skill. I give him curses, yet he gives me love. Oh, that my prayers could such affection move. The more I hate, the more he follows me. The more I love, the more he hateth me. So it's a sequence of alternate lines. Uh, each, uh, each is a, a, a rhyming couplet. And the third couplet is where the sort of parallel structures uh, converge, I think. The use of the same word, me, as the rhyme, uh, the more I hate, the more he follows me, the more I love, the more he hateth me. There's a sort of collapse of rhyme because it's in fact the same, the same word. And we can see that that syntactic structure has been leading towards that 
similitude. Rhyme always brings things together, it couples things together, but here it's coupling together something which is the same uh, or, or in, in, both, in both lines, me and me. The rhyme there enacts, I think, the collapse of individual difference that the play develops elsewhere. For all the comic emphasis later on the physical difference between the two women, there's a scene, as you'll remember, where uh, they're, they're different sizes, they're different uh, uh, colouring, seems to be uh, the, the subject of kind of a co comic uh, rivalry between them. The overall emphasis of the play is to stress their interchangeability. Jan Kott writes, this mechanical reversal of the objects of, de of desire and the interchangeability of lovers is not just the basis of the plot. The reduction of characters to love partners seems to me the most peculiar characteristic of this cruel dream. We'll come back to the idea of cruel dream in a minute. And perhaps its most modern quality. This is the bit from Cot, which I think is so interesting here. The partner is now nameless and faceless. He or she just happens to be the nearest. So... One thing that does happen in this play that we're going to go on to explore is how Shakespeare repeatedly shows up the absurdity of dramatic conventions of love at first sight in the way the play targets sight with the magic flower and therefore shows its operations to be arbitrary. But I think something of what Cott gets there about cruelty is something uh, that, that will become clearer as I go on. So linguistic and rhetorical doubling through parallel syntax and through the heavy use of rhyme. Uh, I think this, this, these formal characteristics must be one of the reasons Midsummer Night's Dream has been so, um, so much taken up by choreographers, by musicians, by sort of non-verbal or non-representational forms of art, uh, ballet, um, uh, opera, music and so on, that it has these formal, this formal linguistic quality already, which is not mostly referential, but, but is, is kind of uh, rhythmic um, uh, and aesthetic. So linguistic and rhetorical doubling through parallel syntax and through the heavy use of rhyme shows us the way that Shakespeare's language here is a microcosm of his wider dramatic art. So what's happening at the level of a sentence or a speech is miniaturising a wider theme or debate. So the larger scale, the kind of macrocosm of these microcosmic linguistic uh, doublings and rhymings include, I think, uh, here in Midsummer Night's Dream, probably the most prominent structural use of doubling in Shakespeare's canon. So most notably, Midsummer Night's Dream seems written to allow, or indeed to demand, that Theseus and Hippolyta, the rulers of Athens, be doubled by, that is, played by the same actors as Oberon and Titania. Now, I've talked elsewhere in these lectures about the interpretive possibilities of having the same actors playing different characters. I think it's a really interesting way to see... Uh, in some ways, non-psychological connections between, uh, between characters, between figures in Shakespeare's plays. We might think about The Winter's Tale or The Comedy of Errors, for instance. In those plays, as here, doubling is less a simple matter of theatrical logistics and more part of the play's thematic construction. The doubling of the rulers of the two worlds means that the fairy world comes to stand as the night time to the court's day. Productions often also double Theseus's master of ceremonies philostrate with Oberon's factotum puck. It's often suggested also that the four Athenian workmen who are practising the play Pyramus and Thisbe would have been the same actors as those playing Titania's fairy entourage. 
so that flug, flute and snug and snout would have played peas blossom and moat and mustard seed. Seeing these heavy-booted working men as the distinctly human-sized fairies is one of the ways we need to challenge over-sentimentalised readings of this play, which derive from its reinvention as a play particularly suitable for children in the 19th century. Uh, the 19th century constructed an idea of fairies as diminutive sort of Tinkerbell-type creatures. Peter Pan is itself uh, an heir to that kind of sugary idea, do you believe in fairies? So the idea that the wood may be a dream wood, a dream world in which the court's unconscious life is played out via those elements of dreams which post-Freudian analysis has taught us to see are very close to literary processes, ideas like displacement or condensation or symbolisation, ideas like metonym and metaphor as being crucial to how dreams work. They're also clearly uh, terms with which uh, literary criticism is very clear. It might be helpful for us to remember that the first book called The Interpretation of Dreams was written not by Freud at the end of 1899, but by Thomas Hill in 1576. Hill argued in his book The Most Pleasant Art of the Interpretation of Dreams that dreams were looking glasses of the body, placed it might so behold and foreshow matters imminent. Hill's interpretation of dreams is quite an interesting counter to what comes later, that we're used to thinking of dreams as being a way of dealing with the past, with memory or, or something. Hill tells us that actually dreams are prophetic, they look forward. What I want to do uh, in this middle part of the lecture is to think about some of the different ways early modern and more modern ways of thinking about dreams might help us with this play so preoccupied with dreaming. What might the dream have meant to Shakespeare's audiences? Perhaps one notable point to mention before we start is that while medieval literature is preoccupied by the dream narrative uh, as, as a, a, a sort of trope for organising fictions, um, as, as you will all know, in the early modern period, the dream narrative is a much less used literary trope. It falls away for some reason between the medieval period uh, and the early modern. In Shakespeare's work, only perhaps the taming of the shrew which I'll be talking about next week, might be thought to be a dream play. The induction with the drunken tinker Christopher Sly has him fall asleep at the opening, only to be awoken, but maybe he isn't, by lords who are out hunting and decide to play a trick on him, pretend he is a nobleman and invite him to watch a play of Catherine and Petruchio. So apart from The Taming of the Shroom, it's Midsummer Night's Dream where Shakespeare most seems to explore how the dream and theatre or the dream and imagination, might be connected. In Midsummer Night's Dream, almost every character falls asleep at some point in the play, thus at least opening the possibility that what happens afterwards is thus, is thus their dream, rather than reality. I, mean, I think we understand that trope, that if a person uh, falls asleep and wakes up and then weird things happen to them in a, in a film or you know, some kind of uh, narrative fiction of any sort, we understand that to be a dream. It was all a dream. After Lysander, who's been touched by Robin Goodfellow's love in idleness potion, vows to reject Hermia and to love Helena instead, Hermia wakes from a nightmare in which she, see, in which she says, Methought a serpent eat my heart away, and yet sat smiling at his cruel prey. 
That's the first of the, of the uh, actual dreams uh, in the play. Stage directions in the early text suggest that, of course, the sleeping lovers need to remain on stage all the time while the fairy world pursues its business, uh, giving us the idea that the fairies are some kind of dream projection by the lovers. And in the sequence of awaking at the end of Act 4, where Titania, the lovers, and then Bottom are all serially roused from sleep, Demetrius describes first their experiences as a dream, and the lovers depart for Athens, vowing to tell their dreams. In the immediately following scene, Bottom identifies what has happened to him as a wonderful dream. Uh, I have had a most rare vision. I had a dream past the wit of man to say what dream it was. Man is but an ass if he go about to expound this dream. Methought I was, there is no man can tell what. Methought I was, and methought I had. But man is but a patched fool if he, were offered to say, if he will offer to say what methought I had. He will, he says, get Peter Quince to make a ballad of these wonderful events and call it Bottom's Dream. Some critics have suggested that's what we should call the whole play. Right at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, Robin Goodfellow's epilogue performs the act of simultaneous praise for and modesty about the play performed that's typical of surviving epilogues. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you, you but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme, no more yielding than a dream. The whole play, Robin suggests, is our dream. Like modern Hollywood then, the early modern theatre is a kind of dream factory, providing theatre-goers with an escapist fantasy from which they only reluctantly awake to return to their humdrum waking lives. Adrian Noble's 1996 film of the play had the whole thing seen through the eyes of a young, pyjama-clad boy. It was all his dream, drawing on tropes from Wizard of Oz in thinking about childish imagination and the doubling of waking and dreaming worlds. So... That all tells us that the play itself, beyond its title, has the dream as a running motif. One important source for early modern ideas about dreams comes in Thomas Nash's prose pamphlet, published in 1594 as The Terrors of the Night. Nash here discusses a wide range of nocturnal spooks, from ghosts to dreams. We know lots of points of connection between Shakespeare and Nash. They're thought to be co-authors uh, of Henry VI, Part One. There are probable allusions to Nash's texts in Henry IV, Part One, in Hamlet and in Love's Labour's Lost. It may well be, I think, that Midsummer Night's Dream draws, on, draws directly on the terrors of the night. And even if it doesn't, Nash gives us uh, some sense of what dream theory, uh, if such existed, might have been in the early modern period. So I'm just going to uh, spend a bit of time on uh, some of Nash's ideas about dreams. Now, like many things in the early modern period, from religious belief to the self... Dreams were being re-understood and reinterpreted, less as something that invaded from outside and more as something created internally. Okay, so that's a general movement in this period towards the kind of interior as the place where things happen or things are generated. Uh, less sense of the operation of external factors, uh, metaphysical factors or whatever, uh, on, on uh, uh, human, human behaviour. So the older view was that dreams were communication from some uh, metaphysical realm, perhaps God, hence Bottom's famous bungling of lines from St Paul's letter to the Corinthians when he recalls his dreamlike encounter with Titania, or perhaps from elsewhere. 
Shakespeare often depicts ghosts as appearing in dreams, uh, and there's something about the kind of uh, double um, unreality of that structure which seems useful, as in, for example, the appearance of the ghost of Julius Caesar to Brutus, or the encounters that Richard III and Richmond have with the play's dead, who ritually curse Richard and bless his challenger. So the question about whether dreams come from outside or inside the human relate to broader cultural debates about human agency. That's something I talk about quite a lot in my lecture on Macbeth. Nash's views in The Terrors of the Night tend towards a sceptical idea about where dreams come from. He does not feel that dreams are the result of divine or diabolic possession. For Nash, dreams are nothing else but a bubbling scum or froth of the fancy which the day hath left undigested, or an afterfeast made of the fragments of idle imaginations. So nice idea. Nothing else but the bubbling scum or froth of the fancy which the day hath left undigested. So Nash has a sense that it's probably quite common to us that what, what dreams do is to process some elements of raw or, uh, as he says, undigested material from, from waking life. They, they do some work of psychic uh, processing. That's, quite a, uh, that's an idea which, uh, which many of us would, would think explains our dreams now. Sometimes Nash's uh, ideas seem to echo quite specifically with Midsummer Night's Dream. Nash describes the dream world as a kind of puppet stage which travesties or re-performs the things that we have done during the day. It's a kind of uh, performing reverse of the uh, everyday world, a theatre. That might help us think both about Midsummer Night's Dream itself and also about the play within the play, Pyramus and Thisbe in Midsummer Night's Dream. This is Nash. Of these things which are most known to us, some of us that have moist brains make to ourselves images of memory. On these images of memory whereon we build in the day comes some superfluous humour of ours like a jackanapes in the night and erects a puppet stage or some such ridiculous, idle, childish invention. And he argues that when all is said, Melancholy is the mother of dreams and of all terrors of the night. Let it but affirm it hath seen a spirit, though it be but the moonshine on the wall, the best reason we have cannot infringe it, which echoes the sort of dramaturgy of Pyramus and Thisbe, ridiculous emphasis in that play on the materiality of moonshine and wall. And most interestingly, I think, for what we might want to say about Midsummer Night's Dream, Nash likens the sleeping world to that... Uh, initial darkness out of which, according to biblical accounts of creation, the world was born. No such figure as the first chaos whereout the world was extraught as our dreams in the night. In them, all states, all sexes, all places are confounded and meet together. So that idea that uh, dreams somehow access some primeval time before the creation of the world in which all states, all sexes, all places are confounded and meet together, I think is quite helpful for thinking uh, about this play. The idea, that, uh, the idea of this confounding and meeting together gives us a sense of the way in which the whole play might be imagined as a dream, and that the juxtaposition of different worlds within the play, the court and the wood, the human and the animal, the upper and lower class, fairy and mortal, male and female, this all corresponds to a kind of pre-creation chaos 
into which Nash suggests our dreams picture us. So Nash's sense is that dreams offer a kind of suspension of the rules of the created world, rather like theatre. Useful, I think, for the operation of the dream motif in the play, and useful in part to show that in order to think seriously about what the dream might mean here, we don't need necessarily to turn to modern psychoanalysis. That, that too has its uh, advantages, but there is an early modern discourse about dreams which could enable us to think about this uh, historically. What, what more modern assessments of the implication of the dream in Midsummer Night's Dream have usefully emphasised, though post-Freud, is that the dream world is entirely preoccupied with sex, that the froth or scum that comes to our minds as a result of our daytime work is almost always that of suppressed or illicit or excessive sexual desire. Freud identified dreams as wish fulfilment, a place where we do the things that we can't normally do. And that's a useful concept, perhaps, for thinking about the play's dreamers. The prominence of sex, then, in the play's imagination means that the question of who marries who registers rather the arbitrariness of the social structure of marriage. Marriage serves, of course, in early modern comedy as the regulator of potentially anarchic sexual desire. It's very much uh, an awake, daytime uh, form of oppression. In this reading, it doesn't really matter then who marries who, it just matters that they are married, because this is a necessary structure to contain the play's excessively sexual imagination, if you like, its unconscious. Now, to talk about Midsummer Night's Dream as one of Shakespeare's most insistently sexual plays sits very uneasily alongside the idea of it being suitable for children. And as I've already suggested, something of this idea arises from Victorian and Edwardian ideas uh, about fairies and childhood, like other sentimental manifestations of that in the Victorian period, like fairy pa paintings, uh, which often draw, drew on Midsummer Night's Dream. The inheritance of this view of the play meant that it was established in the UK in the lower school curriculum. It was for a time a set play for 14-year-olds in UK schools. These assumptions about the plays led to the following mismatch of views as reported by BBC News Online. A group of red-faced schoolchildren walked out of a production of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream upset by the sexually explicit nature of the play. Coventry teacher Stephen McGraw led his class of 11-year-olds from the theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon after the fairy queen Titania and Bottom, dressed as a donkey, started writhing round on a bed. Mr McGraw said, The children were all embarrassed. What we saw was not what we were expecting. It was sexually explicit. The production has driven... This is a very fine phrase here. The production has driven a coach and carriage through our school's religious and sex education policies. <laughs> now... <clears throat> Poor Mr McGraw's feeling that sexually explicit was not what we were expecting shows just how far popular, plays of, popular perceptions of the play's wholesomeness had overlaid uh, what, what I think in, instead we should see as its insistent sexuality. Let's take that scene that the article suggests was the final straw for those Coventry schoolchildren, although they'd lasted quite a long time if they got to Titania and Bottom uh, writhing on the bed. You would have thought they may as well just go on with it by, by that point, but it, clearly it was just too much. So let's just, let's just take that scene. Um, the encounter between Titania and Bottom. Victorian illustrated Shakespeare's. It's really well worth Googling pictures of this because you can see how this, this image became completely uh, whimsically uh, 
uh, iconically pictured by, by Victorian, uh, late Victorian culture. It became the, the picture that you would get in an, in, in a, an edition of Midsummer Night's Dream, but an entirely uh, c- kind of uh, cleaned up uh, version where um, the Queen of the Fairies sits decorously in a flowery bower bedecked with greenery and perhaps she strokes the ears uh, of a snoozing uh, and rather beautiful ass-headed ass uh, sort of humanoid uh, in, her, in her bower. The effects of Robin Goodfellow's potion must surely be intended to be more carnal than this, not least because it's hard to imagine that spending time stroking the ears of a donkey man could quite humiliate Titania enough to make her relinquish the Indian boy. That is, after all, the point of this whole scene, according to Oberon. That's what Oberon is aiming at. So we have a magically infatuated fairy queen, a man with a donkey head and a grassy bower. doesn't seem to me rocket science. Do we think we find Bottom asleep because he's been working so hard learning his lines? I think not. I think the bower scene uh, we could get twice in the play. Um, uh, The play is really really interested in what's happening in that bower. Uh, That's a sequence which toys with unshowable scenes of bestiality that invites us to speculate indecorously about Bottom hung like a donkey and stresses the sexual encounter from the pages of Ovid's Metamorphoses that transcends the social and category differences between the two people involved. Now, Titania's word for desire is, of course, love. Sleep thou, and I will wind thee in my arms. Fairies be gone, and be always away. So doth the woodbine, the sweet honeysuckle, gently entwist. The female ivy so enrings the barky fingers of the elm. Oh, how I love thee! How I dote on thee. What Midsummer Night's Dream reveals here is that love can, of course, uh, then as now, be, mean both sex and romance, uh, and that we tend to assume in Shakespeare that it means the latter, romance, when more often it means the former, sex. Just as Victorian ideas about fairies have shaped the play's reception, so has the often repeated assertion that this play was written for performance at some uh, aristocratic Elizabethan marriage. There is absolutely no evidence for this, and no specific wedding has ever been convincingly identified. It's part, in fact, of a kind of critical attempt uh, to clean this up, to make this a play which is about marriage, uh, to make it more decorous, more regular, uh, a celebration uh, of of kind of nuptial uh, regulation rather than of sexual desire and transgression. But in Titania's speech, I think love here means sex, not romance. The wood is the space of desire. In fact, perhaps it does just represent desire itself, since it has almost no other characteristics. Uh, if you think back uh, to the lecture I was giving on As You Like It, and we were talking about how the, how the wood, how the Forest of Arden is depicted, the natural world of the Forest of Arden. We get none of that in the wood uh, of um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. There's no interest in making it into a, anything like a real place or an alternative place. It seems as if it is just... Uh, you know, in, in some sense, the id or the space of desire. There's very little in the language of Midsummer Night's Dream that characterises the wood outside Athens as anything other than a metaphor, uh, a metaphor, a, a metaphor for desire, which is not always comfortable or nice. Thus, the question of who marries who is a bourgeois fiction. This is not a play about marriage. It begins and ends with marriage, but it the, uses the majority of the plot to explore tantalising alternatives threesomes, partner swapping, bestiality, sadomasochism. 
when somebody told me the Bishop of Southwark sometimes listened to these podcasts, my first thought was, that's brilliant. And my second thought was, there's going to be a point where that will pop into my mind. That was the point. <clears throat> Just sh- shut your ears, Bishop. <clears throat> so, this, uh, this, the, se- the idea that the plot uh, tries to explore sexual alternatives to marriage has been cued from the very start. Theseus's marriage to Hippolyta, with which the play opens, is explicitly established as the result of con- conquest rather than courtship. And the opening scene is structured so that Hippolyta, the Amazon queen, is given no opportunity to reply to Theseus. This is, this is Theseus. Hippolyta, I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love doing thee injuries, but I will wed thee in another key with pomp, with triumph and with revelling. What happens immediately after that is Aegeus comes in with Hermia, Demetrius and Lysander, so Hippolyta never replies. Uh, it's, an, it's one of those silences that Shakespeare is so good at um, because we don't know what Hippolyta's response is. This is a gap into which directors and actors can and do move. Many Hippolytas seem quite happy with this arrangement, but there are also productions in, uh, and, and a large number of production histories which you can read about in Trevor Griffith's um, production history. There are productions in which the captive queen is brought in in chains or depicted as a disdainful, unwilling or enforced partner in the anticipated marriage. Hints of coercive or sadomasochistic sex are often present in the staging of that opening scene. We get a sense of this later when Helena wishes herself uh, to be Demetrius's dog. The more you beat me, I will fawn on you. Use me but as your spaniel. Spurn me, strike me. Elsewhere, recent productions have been concerned to excavate the play's sexual unconscious. Elizabethan fairies and pucks seem to have had more obviously sexual mischief in mind as they slipped in and out of the human world. And an early modern illustration of Robin Goodfellow depicts him not as the kind of sexless um, uh, uh, figure who, who moves, you know, sort of jumps around the stage, but rather as a hairy legged satyr supporting an impressive phallus. The issue of the Indian boy, so beloved of both Titania and Oberon, and the source of the passionate discord between them, has also tended to be understood recently sexually. The Indian boy becomes less a tiny child and more a pretty adolescent. The boy who never appears in the playtext, but is often incorporated into stage productions, seems to crystallise the violent impossibility of desire in the play and its challenge as here to marriage. The Indian boy uh, is very definitely not their own child. Uh, it's a token between them which threatens to break up uh, rather than confirm the relationship between Oberon and Titania. So the play seems to, to trace the relationships or disconnections between sexual desire as a transgressive and disturbing emotion on the one hand and the social pragmatics of marriage on the other. Perhaps the plot suggests to us that the lover's desires and their trajectory towards marriage are not entirely the same. Marriage is revealed as the inadequate social, structural response to desire, a kind of vanilla daytime version. So if violent and uncontrollable desire is the real dynamic that Midsummer Night's Dream lets loose then, it proceeds to try to bundle it back up within these regulatory structures of marriage. Hermia's description of her dream of Lysander's faithlessness is in this light unmistakably phallic, the serpent at her heart away. People in Shakespeare are always dreaming about, uh, about snakes. 
and it follows from their exchange about the regulation of sexual desire in the potentially unregulated wood, having run away uh, from the, from the uh, court of Athens, having run away from parental uh, strictures, uh, Hermia and Lysander have to negotiate where they're, how they're going to sleep uh, in the wood. Um, uh, uh, Hermia, you'll remember, tells Lysander, lie a little further off. So sexual attraction is a potentially dangerous uh, in, in this world. One reading of, of what Hermia is saying there is that suddenly she realises she is in this unregulated space where what she actually wants could, could turn out to be quite frightening. Love is darkly physical and anarchic here, not decorously romantic. Midsummer Night's Dream, I think, is not a romantic comedy, but rather a comedy which looks beneath the conventions of courtship and romance and is actually rather frightened by what it sees. Midsummer Night's Dream, writes Jan Cott, is the most erotic of Shakespeare's plays. But, he goes on to say, in no other tragedy or comedy of his except Troilus and Cressida is the eroticism expressed so brutally. We might see a kind of parodic version of this, perhaps, in the mechanical's laughable play. The most lamentable comedy and most cruel death of Pyramus and Thisbe takes up much of the play's final act. It's often very funny in a slapstick and usually over-the-top way in performance, splicing physical comedy with absurd innuendo. The stones of the wall through which the lovers speak invariably draw on the meaning of stones as testicles, for instance. But the central story of Pyramus, I don't mean to suggest that it isn't funny or uh, to say that we can't find it funny or, or even to suggest that something being funny is, is somehow the opposite of the darkness that I'm uh, talking about uh, elsewhere in the play. I think, I think that's entirely compatible. But we could see that the playlet of Pyramus and Thisbe again shows us that desire is destructive and violent. Thisbe is menaced by a lion. Perhaps we could see that that's the menacing of her own desires. Lion vile, sorry, lion vile hath here deflowered my dear, announces Pyramus. It's a ridiculous phrase, lion, and ridiculous syntax. Lion vile hath here deflowered my dear. But the word deflowered uh, is, is, is definitely uh, a sexual one. His own suicide, Pyramus's own suicide, establishes desire as destructive, replaying the psychosexual dynamic of Romeo and Juliet. Because the chronology of these plays is unclear, it's not, it's, not, it's not easy to know whether Pyramus and Thisbe parodies Romeo and Juliet that has already been uh, performed or preemptively undermines its rather camp claims to seriousness. Romeo and Juliet that has already been uh, performed or preemptively undermines its rather camp claims to seriousness. Romeo and Juliet that has already been uh, performed or preemptively undermines its rather camp claims to seriousness. But part of the trouble with Pyramus and Thisbe, perhaps, in the modern theatre is that it's sometimes just too funny, trying too hard to be hilarious, almost hysterical in its anxieties to overlay the play's anxieties to display sexual urges into slapstick. But even as it tries to do that, as we've seen, the story of Pyramus and Thisbe means that the real concerns of the play keep bobbing back to the surface. So, what I've been trying to suggest here uh, in this lecture so far is that uh, the confusions uh, over who marries are not just light-hearted fun in the play. What they point up to us is the incompatibility uh, of different 
uh, 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 the incompatibility of comic structure in the play with the kind of desire which uh, the wood is able to mobilise. It doesn't matter who marries who, um, because marriage is revealed to be a kind of arbitrary form of control, a way of taking back uh, the frightening aspects of the, of the wood uh, and of submitting to the authority represented so decisively in the opening by Theseus and by Aegeus. I think we misread the play if we think that Hermia uh, escapes her father's law, uh, is able to marry the person she wants to, and therefore kind of wrong foots Aegeus. Uh, really, as, we, as, as I was saying at the beginning, it doesn't matter whether uh, Hermia marries uh, Demetrius or Lysander. Uh, what matters is that she gets married. So I've also been suggesting that the dream motif uh, is a significant one that has uh, possibility for both modern and early modern readings, that to think, about, to think that dreams are significant in this play doesn't mean turning to Freud necessarily, but could mean turning to Hill or to Nash. So next week I'm going to talk about the taming of the shrew, and I'm going to ask 